Hey guys, welcome or welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond, and this is a show where we explore the science, the stories, and the strategies of getting out of your comfort zone so you can find where the magic happens for you. Today, I'm chatting with Pat Armitstead, a registered nurse with a major in education. Um, she's a professional speaker and motivator, an expert on leadership, communication, grief, and stress. So Pat's a, a pioneer and a thought leader in the area of joy as a transformational agent, um, or as she calls herself, a joyologist. Uh, Pat's dedicated a lot of time to studying joy um, and championing the human spirit, uh, leading people to find joy when it appeared that there were none. Um, and Pat's life has been devoted to helping other people transform their lives and I was lucky enough to be able to have a have a conversation with her about uh, about joy, about joyology, and about her life. So today, Pat and I talk about joy, about always wanting to be first, um, about having a compassionate self and a humorous self, about taking the piss, about interrupting patterns. We talk about self doubt in terms of being able to fully express herself. And why it doesn't matter if Pat ends up back in the corridor. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this chat today. Um, if this is your first time, then welcome to the, the podcast. If you've been listening for a while, welcome back. Um, make sure that you guys hit the subscribe button so that you get these episodes coming to you every Tuesday for these interviews and on a Friday for the short uh, solo episodes from me. If you've been here for a little while and you're enjoying what you hear, make sure you leave us a rating and review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app because it really helps out with uh, the show visibility. But thank you guys so much for getting uncomfortable with Pat and I today. Welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. How are you doing today? <laughs> I should I should be saying something like, oh, really uncomfortable. <laughs> no, everyone's really comfortable when we kick things off. Eh? They're sitting in a nice place. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty happy. Um, sometimes the questions that I ask them make them squirm a little bit, but uh, most, of the, most of the time they're all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Good, good, good. <laughs> Pat, what I usually like to start things off with, um, just so the the listeners get a little bit of an idea about yourself, is kind of who you are, where, where you're from, where you grew up, were there any kind of big formative experiences uh, in your younger years that have shaped you as the person you are today? Yeah, I grew up, I'm Australian, um, I did live in New Zealand for 17 years, um, but I'm now now back in Australia. I grew up in a little country town in New South Wales called Camden. Um, it's the town where MacArthur Onslow bought the first sheep to Australia. And, um, 
um, lived a fairly, you know, a, a rural life, uh, not on a farm, but um, in a real country town. And um, probably the distinctive thing through my childhood was I excelled at art and sewing, not so well with um, many of the other subjects. Always wanted to be an artist, but when I left school, my mother said, well, you know, that's lovely, dear, and your father frames everything you paint, but I really think you should get a proper job. And so it was that I went nursing. And probably that journey then, um, I started as a nurse aide because I didn't know if I really wanted to um, be a nurse. Ended up loving it, so did my general nurse training. Uh, then went on and did uh, a debed in nursing and nursed for 16 years all up, um, the last six years managing a 79-bed hospital. And throughout all of that, um, you know, this topic of being uncomfortable, um, I've always wanted to be first <laughs> and not necessarily highly skilled academically, really got to apply myself to, you know, succeed in those areas. And one of the, the things through that pathway, I had after 12 months as a, a registered nurse, I was appointed to be a charge sister, which is pretty much unheard of. At the age of 29, I was, um, they called it matron back then, uh, matron of a hospital. And um, yeah, really, I wanted to forge a path and so really committed to do what others wouldn't do in order to get to where I wanted to go. And one of the things along that pathway was I wanted that college gown and, um, and I got it. <laughs> and, but it really wasn't about the gown. It was the, um, I think it was a, a level of status back then. And um, having made it, if you like, um, and achieved where um, in a field where I hadn't intended to go, but I, I went there and I ended up excelling. So it was um, a wonderful, heartfelt journey. And along that path, I, I discovered my compassionate self, but also my humorous self. And there are lots of stories. Um, I spent a lot of time in matron's office when I was a student because um, I played a lot of tricks and pranks on patients, <laughs> which didn't always go down well. Um, went down okay with the patients, but not with the um, the institution. Yeah, it might be even more frowned upon today, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Pat, I want to I want to unpack some of that stuff a little bit, but what sort of pranks were you playing? Well, the um, we would we I would do things like um, men who are confined to bed for you know whatever reason their their physical condition. We used to paint the um, end of their urinal that they'd used to wee in while they were confined to bed with mercurochrome. So it'd leave a big red ring around their pubes. <laughs> or 
um, we'd put um, over there, I don't think you have Dexel, but, you know, the effervescent Enos, um, um, things for indigestion, yeah. Yeah. add water and they fizz up. So we would put Eno, Enos in in the urinals and they'd fizz up <laughs> and make a mess. Um, things like that. Yeah. I, I had um, one of my favourite tricks when I was prepping people for surgery was I'd come in with about a 24-inch kidney tray, a, um, a blood needle, which is about 18 inches long, and um, an ear syringe, which is, you know, probably about 10 inches long, um, and, you know, say that I'm here to give them their pre-med. I'd have their pre-med in a little needle, of course, but, um, yeah, making things things big and giant. And I think when I look back on that, I didn't plan to do those things. It was just my natural impish self showing up. Mm. Um not in such a way that it was going to be, you know, a risk to the patient or, you know, be outside safety zones, but more about interrupting patterns. And I didn't consciously know at that point what I know now, but certainly about relieving their pain. One of the first men that I ever nursed was a man by the name of Bob Hall and a construction crane had fallen on Bob. And he arrived in casualty, 35 broken bones, and they pretty much stood around the table and thought, he's not going to make it. But time passed, about four hours passed, and he was still alive. And so then they risked taking him to theatre, thinking he's going to die on the table. So he didn't die on the table. And as they're trolling him back to recovery, the conversation was pretty much going, well, poor beggar, he'll... um." probably be a vegetable. Bob woke up in recovery and revealed very quickly that indeed he wasn't a vegetable. And then the conversation changed again and they said, well, he'll never walk again. Bob Hall was in hospital the whole three years of my general nurse training. And I saw Bob Hall every day I was on duty, whether I was rostered on his floor or not. And he walked on two sticks to my graduation ceremony and stood up the back of the room. And when the ceremony proper was over, he stood up and waved one of his sticks and he said, I've actually got something I'd like to say. And I'm getting a bit scared at this point because my mother's sitting in the front row. <laughs> and I have an idea of what he might be wanting to talk about. And he came down the front and he had this huge scroll. It was about three feet long. And he just started peeling open this scroll and reading off all the dreadful tricks and pranks <laughs> I did to him over that three-year period. And every now and again, my poor mother would go, oh, Patricia, you didn't. <laughs> and then when he was finished, he turned to me and he said, you don't know what you did. And I actually never really, really got that till 2001. That was back in 1973. Um, intervening years just had me realise the depth of that. That that impish self, my my natural self, showed up without intention. Like I didn't consciously do any of those things. It was a natural expression of 
the imp that's within me. Um, but I didn't really know the depth of the good that that was going to do. Mm. And 2001, a range of things happened, and we'll probably talk about that shortly. And I just really got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so very I, cool. I, Pat, had you always been into kind of urine-related pranks since you were younger as well, or was that something that kind of developed in your nursing training? Are you inferring that, you know, I might be taking the piss? Uh, you could say that, eh? I don't think that's a Kiwi saying at all. Uh, um, what was the question again? <laughs> Yeah, let me reword it. Were you yeah. were you a bit of an imp when you were younger as well? Yes. Yeah. And my okay. father and my father was a very funny man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Cool. One of the things that I wanted to ask you as well about was um, kind of the the fact that you always wanted to be first. So I'm assuming that that was kind of the first to get out there and do something amongst your group, but also kind of the like sort of first in the class first as well was would I be right in saying saying that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Where did where did that come from for you? Do you know? Um. Yes. In in my mind, uh, I was the eldest of three girls, and in my mind, I had it um, that it didn't seem to matter how much I did. The other two seemed to have. Um, front of mind feature more highly in my mother's conversation. So the um, much of my outreach was in terms of, you know, I'll do this and I'll win that and, uh, you know, is it good enough yet? And, um, you know, I don't think there was any bad intent there on my mother's behalf, but... Um, a common outcry from my mother right up until she passed was, oh, Patricia, how silly could you be? So a lot of my creative expression, not just my humour but my art, um, became pocketed a bit under that silly umbrella and and so I developed um, a lot of self-doubt in terms of full expression. So when I went nursing, I didn't paint for 16 years. I didn't do any anything very creative over that time frame. Not really a lot of scope <laughs> um, for that. Um, <laughs> Just finger so, painting yeah. on the wall. <laughs> the um, As a child, I did that. Um, I sold my nappy one time, so my mother tells me when I was about two and and did some art on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Potentially yeah, there's a few I, people listening from that work in hospitals that will very much appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I think the I remember my first stint in the children's ward, um, a very austere, tall, thin reed of a woman with a long, thin nose and really kind of gaunt face. Um, her first name was Ollie. I won't say her last name. And um, at the end of my first day in the children's ward, she called me into her office and she said, my single name was Murdoch then, she said, Nurse Murdoch, you are never going to make it as a nurse. 
And in that moment, I remember resolve kicking in. It was like, you watch me. You watch me. <laughs> uh, so I got first prize every year and, um, and finished well, um, you, know, ac- you know, in terms of academic achievement for, for nursing. Um, and, you know, it was probably the biggest, it was an, um, it was a, an awful negating moment, but it fired something up in me. Mm, mm. So with the, this kind of desire to always be first, Pat, I mean, obviously you, were, you, you had some awareness of it at the time because you would get out and do things that other people wouldn't and kind of knew that you wanted to sort of prove people, prove people wrong. Um, but when did you, like, when did you develop the, I kind of the awareness that that was one of your characteristics through that period of time? I mean, for, I'm sure it's like, it definitely did some good things for you, but it probably also had some, uh, some negative effects as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, New Zealand and Australia both carry a tall poppy, um, tall poppy mm-hmm. effect, and yeah, all along that pathway, any time, and not not necessarily in a humorous way now, but any time I showed up in a distinctive way or stepped out or put myself forward for uh, events or activities within you know the hospital's uh, arms, <laughs> um, there would be those in higher positions who would, um, you know be negating, um, you know, the the backhanded remark, um, not at all, <laughs> kind and compassionate. Um, so, you know, they, they either make you or break you those times. And, you know, I remember uh, once doing a midwifery term and the registered midwife was guiding me. I was still a student. And she had given me some instructions. I was standing with a woman and went about what to do. And so when it happened, I went and told her. And I don't know exactly what happened, but she obviously didn't tell the um, doctor. And when the doctor arrived, um, she put it straight back on to me. So I wore the blame and I wore his tirade. <laughs> um and that was a big wound. That took a while to really get over <laughs> um, and, and come to a point of, um, you know, not being forever wounded by it. To, yeah, so I probably built some of resilience from that point. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, can, I can imagine that the tirade would be... Uh, it would be probably pretty reasonable from a, a doctor in those days as well. And Pat, moving moving forward though, you you nursed for you nursed for a while and then you got out of it. Like what what was the catalyst to to stop nursing? Um, well, I at twenty nine I applied for this job to be a matron. Um, they're called directors of nursing now, and. Um, with a bit of trepidation, I'd just finished my dip ed nursing and uh, I was going to change the world. And so this position comes up and I thought, oh, this could be okay, scary. <laughs> um, and I ended up having three interviews before selected. And 
uh, was there six years and, um, yeah, it was a huge opportunity for me to create a lot of change. So I really found my full confidence in being able to implement all that I'd learned up until then and to raise standards and improve conditions for the people who lived there. Um, so it was in that time. Um, but it was a, a nursing home and back then staff were very poorly trained. So staff turnover was just huge and, um, you know, forever replacing <laughs> working a roster. And at the end of six years, I was just done. So um, I resigned. Um, my first relationship had broken up in that time frame. I had met another man and he wanted to go travelling around Australia and that certainly hadn't been my plan. <laughs> I was going to be matron of a Sydney hospital at that point. Um, however, um, met this man and um, after some time surrendered into that idea and I went off on a five-year working holiday around Australia, um, really <laughs> leaping in a, a leap of faith to... Um, because there was no, you know, we didn't know the next day what we were going to do, what was going to happen. And, you know, I have great pleasure telling you we, we were never without work. We would phone ahead, ahead to other towns. One or other of us would find work. Um, we lived in a, a motor home. I homeschooled my, my son. Um, and we had a better lifestyle and quality of life, I think, <laughs> Um than before then and perhaps even since. Incredible. And so, you know, I learnt to live with um, free fall. You know, it was, you know, we didn't know until, you know, you make a phone call or the next step or the next step. Um, and, you know, to have faith and trust. So that was a, um, a huge gift to me. Because, uh, yeah, I would never have gone there of my own volition. Mm. I'd have been, been back with something more secure and steady and fortnightly pay. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any of those characteristics or, or some part of those characteristics beforehand and that kind of faith that things would turn out okay and, and the trust that it would as well before you kind of took that leap and, and jumped into that? I probably had some. But this gave me a, you know, I'd been in a, I'd progressed through the ranks in a regularly paid, you know, hospital environment um, to leave there and leap <laughs> and just trust. Um, and the experiences that happened over that five years uh, really equipped me to have um, a much more heightened level of faith in the universe, you know, all is imperfection. Uh, there was a certain level of planning and stuff that we did, but in the main we were very much living in the moment. Uh, once I'd got over my initial fear because I worried that I was perhaps not doing the right thing for my son, once that had subsided the first three or four months, yeah, I just saw the, the absolute benefits of cutting away from mainstream. 
Mm. What um, when was this pet like in terms of time frame and what's what's kind of a, a similar way that you see people doing something like that now or do you think it's possible for people to go and do something like that now? Uh, that was in the um, mid eighties, eighty four through to eighty nine. Yes, I think you could. We set ourselves up to be totally self-sufficient in a little motorhome. So there was, you know, a level of personal security in that. We didn't go from expecting, you know, a CEO role at the next town. Um, It was like working really closely with immediate skills. My partner was an electronics technician. And the way things were back then, he found work in every town. You know, it was just so electronics and all that has changed. So you mightn't find work doing what he did back then. But, you know, nurses, nurses will always find work. So, you know, there was there was that. But there were other experiences. Like uh, we managed a wildlife sanctuary for 12 months in Bowen Heads in Victoria, worked for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, worked on the set of the Flying Doctors television program. You're probably a bit young. <laughs> uh, no, no, I remember that. Remember that, that was. <laughs> I'm I'm 34, Pat. So I'm. I I, I, thought I I caught the end of the Flying Doctors. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, Red Wombat. There there were so many extraordinary experiences and learnt and learnt to find our own. You know, became what's the word. Um, like we had a four-wheel drive as well and, you know, there were times when we got trapped on beaches with incoming tides and scary moments. But, you know, we learnt some skills to get ourselves out of all of those situations. And my son tells me now if he and his mates go camping or on expeditions, he's a, a diver, he said, I am fields ahead of him in terms of competency and understanding and being able to look at the environment and, and make judgments um, based on that, that five years mm. way back then. He was only a, in primary school then. Yeah, that's that's cool. How how has that time, that time period shaped uh, you today and kind of uh, what, what skills do you u- still utilise today from that period? I think I have in, even... Like my life has been strewn with quite a lot of adversity, but I know I experience a level of freedom that um, other people do not. Um, so it taught me to to really see what I could and couldn't do, and to to stretch what I could do. You know, white water rafting and. Another, I'm not a, a big adventurer in an outdoorsy kind of way. So even extending myself there, nowadays if um, things come up, uh, one of the things I say to myself is the worst that can happen is you're back in the corridor. And I've got another story I want to share with you later uh, around that. And the corridor is just fine. So, you know, being a level of confidence, I I don't experience the degree of uncertainty that would have been there in my early nursing years. You know, I was constantly working over it. 
but there was a level of personal uncertainty. So, you know, getting ahead, being number one, being the first to do something was always very important, winning awards. And by the time we'd finished this trip, I had an appreciation for my own capacity to self-sustain in time. Yeah, that is very cool. And I, I... I like the way that you that you put that as well, and I think the 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 big thing for me that that I'm kind of thinking of from there at the moment is that I mean we live in a society that is very focused on on security, and I mean we've kind of always that's how we've evolved. We've evolved to be kind of seek out security, and I think we we hold ourselves back a lot of the time because we're we're seeking that security and we're afraid of that uncertainty and what what that uncertainty means um but actually if we if we look to step into the uncertainty and look to extend ourselves that often we're surprised at how capable and how self-sufficient we are when we get into that area but the scary the scary part is taking that first step and like you did you kind of you stepped into it and then as you as you went you became more and more self-sufficient and your um you kind of progressively your your confidence to take on those situations really improved and i think that's the that's a hard part for some people is that taking that first step into uncertainty to get that momentum and get the ball rolling on their kind of building their their self-sufficiency in life and their their life survival skills, if you want. And there's a there's a, a big, uh, we've become an acquisitive society, you know. We want to accrue stuff and mm-hmm. there's, you know, a, a dream of the house and the two matching cars, which now may not be achieved. Mm. You know? Yeah. And I did a, a financial planning program a few years back now a six-month program, and we were two or three months into it and um, some very successful other women uh, around the boardroom table, it was 12, and the, the facilitator asked us, at what point do you worry about your finances? And they began on the other side and, you know, one woman said oh, 200000 when it gets down to 500000 you know, 300000 and my face is going redder and redder, and I'm thinking, dare I tell the truth? <laughs> uh, and so I did. And I said, well, the worst moment that I've had to date is being down to $5. The car had broken down. We had just limped into the next town. This was at the end of that um, working holiday. And... As fearful as that sounds, within 10 minutes, both of us had work. We got out of the car and 10 minutes later, we both had work. So I think the when you can, uh, I know you'll understand with your phys- physiotherapy background, but when we can sustain our own inner energy, we shine and we get noticed <laughs> and mm. we attract things to us. Um, if we had pulled into that town totally fearful, crying in despair, then things might not have been might not have been quite the same scenario. 
Yeah, so, and I really got, it's like, here they were fretting at 200,000. It is like, well, you've got plenty of reserves in my mind. Yeah. Um, I didn't have any reserves. <laughs> and, and I was okay. But I didn't want to stay there, of course, but I was, I was actually okay. It was like we had enough presence and wherewithal to step out and, and we found two solutions. The, the degree to which we worry about money and, and resources and all the trappings, um, and I, I want my own resources and trappings too. It's not, I'm not negating those, but they're, they're, they won't sustain us because tough times will come and they may go. And if they're the things that have us, you know, experience a level of comfort and ease, then when they're gone, um, we're going to be a mess. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I think like another thing with that is a kind of acquiring things as well is that they, they give you a bit of an excite, excited feeling for maybe the first week that you have them. And then actually, for the most part, just, they, they become the norm. They become kind of just part of the background noise of your life that you, you don't appreciate as much every now and then you'll think oh that's that thing is still pretty cool but um for the most part that it's it's just a fleeting sense of pleasure that you get with them as well yeah you know the um i forget who said it one of the might have been zig ziglar one of the great american speakers anyway he said you know we need motivation every day right in the same way that we need a shower every day because we get dirty every day <laughs> so you know we need to cleanse every day so you know he said if we're purely living in that external thing then then we need to be doing it every day in order to sustain it mm. so the owner in this the only way to find a different level of sustainability is from within so you know experiencing Certainty in the face of an environment that is uncertain. Mm. And like, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I mean, the, the only way that I think you can start to experience that certainty in the face of uncertainty is actually to step into some kind of uncertainty in the first place and build your um, build your experience and build your your skill set there as well. Yeah. Mm. Unless you've got a secret hack that you uh, haven't shared with us yet. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the. Um, I remember the first deep water crossing we did in a four-wheel drive and, you know, the water's seeping into the car and it's around my ankles and then it's up around my knees and I'm thinking, what are we doing? And praying the engine won't stop. But, you know, we'd done the work, we'd... Uh, we were well read. The vehicle was well prepared. We had done all the things that they say in the four-wheel drive books. And um, we emerged successfully the other side and went on to meet some people who were at the top of the mountain coming down. And they said, oh, we saw you <laughs> and we've actually filmed you <laughs> doing that crossing. So, yeah, there's... In some respects, I, some people would probably look at that as being quite foolhardy. But 
it was an informed adventure, right? We'd armed ourselves, we'd equipped ourselves with what we thought we needed to know, the car, the pressure in the tyres, the drape over the engine to keep the water out, etc. Um, we kind of had equipped with this mental preparation, you know, holding, holding our ground uh, emotionally um, as we went through, you know, rising water and <laughs> you start to doubt and, yeah, so, you know, measuring, measuring and balancing but proceeding anyway. Mm. And that's the trick. That's the trick. You, if you're doing, a, well, like we end up doing lots of crossings um, and the trick is to keep going. Don't stop. Just keep going. You've got to keep that low gear foot on the accelerator and keep going because while ever you're doing that and um, exhaust is blowing out the back, then you're not going to you're not going to get stuck. Yeah, that's and great. That's a great yeah. life metaphor just there. <laughs> yep, <laughs> no, I, I enjoy that one. Um, <laughs> Pat, with like. With that kind of epic trip that you did, obviously that came to an end at, at that kind of five year mark. Like what's like what was the path from path from there, and how how challenging was it to stop that lifestyle and come into something different again? The 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 trigger for stopping it was my son had reached high school age, and I felt we probably did need to get back into the other world. And, um, you know, having to go to a proper school, I didn't, my partner found work straight away. So, you know, that was fine. But I didn't know what I wanted to do then. It was like, I don't want to go back nursing. No way I'm going to nurse again. Um, but if I don't do that and we've just finished this, what will I do? So there was 12 months of quite a, quite a spin. And um, I ended up getting a job as a nurse in a childcare centre. Um, with 140 children, so that reinforced again that <laughs> I didn't want to be a nurse. <laughs> Along that pathway, um, we had filmed a lot on that trip, um, discovered that editing was extremely prohibitive back in those days, and thought, well, hey, there's probably a lot of other people like us who've got domestic footage who want to do something with it. So we started a company transferring film and slides to video and old video to video and um, built that up into a fully-fledged um, commercial um, ad, small advertising um, studio and started filming for Prime, then um, all the television networks and then 2020 and 60 Minutes. Total... <laughs> total opposite of where I'd been before and, you know, getting getting this, polishing the skill. I remember it took about 10 attempts. So, you know, Prime would say, no, not good enough, no, not good enough, no, not good enough. Um, we'd have to send sample promos. Um, and, you know, I just was committed. This is what I want to do. And, you know, it's hard. <laughs> and just you know again being prepared to look at yourself it's like where am i where am i not measuring up and how you know better next time better next time uh consistency and application always well in my in my experience always wins 
And, you know, that journey along that pathway um, had us um, create a really good relationship with Prime Television. So, you know, the, there's many things along that persistence roadway to, you know, build the relationships, get to know people, have the conversations that you don't really want to have. So to ask, you know, where are we failing? Where's, what do I need to do better? Yeah, and I think that you make an important point there that it's that work upon yourself that you need to, like, kind of reflect back in and, and see, hey, where aren't I measuring up and what aren't I, um, what aren't I kind of stepping into as well as I could? Because I, um, for myself personally, I used to be quite a defensive person as well that I never, uh, if, if someone kind of gave me uh, criticism that I perceived in a negative light, I, I would take it quite personally rather than taking it as an opportunity that, hey, actually this person is probably not doing a, creating a personal attack on me, that they're actually giving me some information to say, hey, look, pull your socks up here and you'll do a whole lot better in life. Um, and I think it's been a, it's kind of been a slow process for me to, uh, figure that out and kind of take that, take that on board. But, um, yeah, I, I thought it was just a really important point to that, that you pulled out there is that in that process or in any process, it's the, really the work you do on yourself that makes the difference in the long mm. run. Mm. And, you know, later on, like I've always been training and speaking and presenting, but 2001 I began professional speaker's journey and, you know, if you want to excel in that industry, then you've got to look at yourself every single time you speak. So, you know, you need some peer review, um, a colleague who's not your best friend because they'll be too kind, someone who's going to give you some raw, honest feedback and also, you know, filming yourself so and looking at yourself, <laughs> uh, that's probably one of the hardest things that most speakers have difficulty with. I remember when I had the radio program, those first four programs where I pre-recorded were a bit shaky. My voice would tend to be up in the throat and uh, you could hear or I could hear my nerves anyway. <laughs> mm. And so just noticing that, it's like, right, so next time I need to be relax beforehand, you know, really get grounded, get some deep breathing happening so that when I am enter in, I'm not up here. So, you know, the, and I can relax out and um, it'll sound so much better. You know, that's, that's looking at the painful part of yourself. Yeah, and I think, like, there's a, there's a, a productive way to ask yourself those questions as well. Um, I mean, everyone has their, their own inner critic that kind of asks some questions like, uh, am I good enough? Am I, uh, am I able to do that? Oh, I don't know if I would have, should have done it that way. Um, which isn't a, it's not a super productive way to approach that, that kind of self-analysis. It turns into a bit of a neg negative spiral for me, I find, and you just kind of end up going down a, going down a rabbit hole stressing yourself out and not actually learning anything or moving forward. Um, do you have a, a way, Pat, that you kind of differentiate between that sort of 
negative criticism that we all have and actually asking yourself positive or asking not positive asking yourself um constructive questions about how you could do better like from the outset when i called myself a joyologist and my other speaking peers were much more people in a suit (laughs) and you know delivering time management marketing and i'm over here and i'm going to evolve something around joy in that period there was a lot of pat you can't do that you know you can't have those orange fingernails and the big hat and uh you're not going to get any work in corporate looking like that so so a lot of that so to be able to hold my own and evolve required a lot of discipline and i had to find a valuable partner and that's where um, Mike Hutchison, uh, who was my mentor, I mentioned him to you before the show. I thought if I'm going to make this work, I need a really strong ally who doesn't know me, really. And I had heard about Mike Hutchison and how good humoured he was. And I thought, okay. <laughs> so initial things step into fear or oh, you know Saatchi and Saatchi what am I going to say to him um, so I had some coaching before I went to meet him <clears throat> and then this is how the universe works for me the day for the appointment is getting closer and closer and I'm getting more scared and more scared how am I what am I going to say to him how am I going to open the conversation already had some bit of coaching to build the confidence but still quite nervous. In the mail came a tiny bottle of Dettol. And I don't know where the idea came from, but I put together that bottle of Dettol, two cotton buds, a Band-Aid and a makeup sponge, wrapped it in clear cellophane, put it in a little treasure chest, and when I went to meet Mike, gifted him with this little box, and he lifted the lid and took the cellophane wrapped items out and said um what's this pat (laughs) and i said well mike i'm not here to sponge off you but i do have the germ of an idea it has a couple of applications and i don't want it to be a band-aid job oh my father is gonna love that (laughs) (laughs) and i'm founding joyology i'm looking for a mentor, will you, would you be my mentor or, and will you help me access funding? And he just said yes and yes, first five minutes in the conversation. So, there, you know, how did that happen? That whole thing about surrendering and letting go, so in the face of fear or anxiety, being able to let go or surrender, get let loose of attachment, allows something to come in. So, you know, my mind's a bit like a pinball parlour. I've got a 100 ideas and there's flashing lights and little pedals going and all sorts of things happening up there. So I see that debt all. I'm hilarious to take to the supermarket because <laughs> <laughs> I can see all kinds of advertising ploys. So, you know, and he's my friend till this day. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. Actually, Pat, that was, it's, uh, that's quite helpful. I think, um, 
I know you before we started recording you said that you wanted to focus mostly on uh, on stuff that's happened after 2001 and here we are 45 minutes into the chat and yeah. we've barely we've barely spoken about it um why, why don't we, why don't we get there <laughs> what um like what what happened in 2001 and um you mentioned joyology before what was what was kind of the the catalyst for that I had um, a whole series of losses. The, to summarise, the advertising company that I had, there was a bit of a downturn in the economy uh, here in Australia and um, we did our best but, you know, things weren't good, businesses were closing, people stopped advertising, so it was quite a struggle. And my ex came from New Zealand, so relocated over there. Um, I had lost my home and my business twice over a four-year period. I had cancer. I'd lost my first child, a daughter. We paid 80000 um, we had with our production company. And then at the end of that period, my ex left with another woman. So I was shattered. And we, um, my doctor wanted to medicate me. And I said, no, they would help me deal with my grief. And so she really wasn't equipped to do that. So I went looking for an answer. And I had a chance conversation with a magician in South Australia. And in the middle of that conversation with him, uh, I just had another insight. And the insight was, oh, my God, we've got radiology, pathology, hematology, but no joyology. I'm going to be a joyologist. Uh, I had no idea what to do with that. Uh, ended up doing two pilot programs, which let me harness and rein in all my past learning and see its relevance for now. And then by about 2004, I had sufficient IP to build a brand. Um, I toured that year with Patch Adams through Russia's orphanages, Moscow and St. Petersburg, and also developed a good grief program and harnessed a program with um, Auckland University delivering a stress, humour and health program. And along that pathway, there were all these naysayers. I mentioned some of them before. Um, and it was almost as if the, the depth to which I plummeted was the depth to which I reintegrated. So there was this disintegration, but there was a reintegration. And I needed to have this learning because a lot of the learning that I had then was not going to serve me moving forward. You know, stuff we thought true 10, 15 years ago now doesn't work. I needed, I, I needed that. <clears throat> and by, yeah, 2005 onwards, um, yeah, it's been my business. Cool. Thank you for sharing that, Pat. Um, that sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty tough time, but it also sounds like there's some been been, been some pretty sweet stuff that's come from it, though. Um, what, like, what, what exactly is joyology? How do you define that to uh, your average passerby? <clears throat> some of the things that I say include. I support people to find joy when it appears there's none. 
So, you know, and, and that go, links right back to even my time with Bob Hall. I could see in, you know, possibility for humour and fun, even though there he was all strung up in traction and bandaged from head to toe, 35 broken bones. My vision, nothing to do with my glasses vision, <laughs> has enabled me to see possibility where others cannot. So that's been there, but now it's really um, well expressed. And probably the other biggest thing along that pathway is, funnily enough, the, the gifts from improv acting. Uh, I don't know if you've had much to do with improv, but the first rule of improv is that first thought is correct. All players are equal. Nobody wins if someone tries to win. Um, but the first one, or um, first thought is correct, was life-changing for me. I actually entered a game show after I'd done my first improv training uh, for a program called The Chair. I don't know if you remember it. Um, pumped you up in a chair. Your heart rate was being monitored. You could hear your own heart rate. You were 25 feet in the air, chair tilted backwards, given the sum of money, which was trickling away, your, you had to answer seven multi-choice questions without exceeding your predetermined stress rate for your heart. No pressure. <laughs> and, yeah, I didn't know the answers to the questions, but I had said to myself outside, the worst that can happen, Pat, is that you're back out here in the corridor and the corridor will be fine. So I didn't stress. Everyone else before me, had lost because they stressed, heart rate of 180. I didn't, I didn't have that. And uh, I didn't know the answers to the questions. They were all multi-choice. I just went with first thought. And I got the first six, and I'm getting really excited because Matthew Ridge is saying, Pat, you said C, and C is correct. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to win. <laughs> and then we got to question seven. And I faltered, and I thought, Oh, D. And then I thought, oh, no, A. So he would have seen my indecision, but I came back and said, D. And he said, Pat, if you had said A, and I thought, oh, no, I've lost. He said, you would have been wrong, but you actually said D, and D is correct. So in that seven minutes, using first thought, I won $5,000 and it changed my life. Changed my life because I didn't know how much I knew and how much I could rely on my intuitive sense. And it just showed me big time the level to which we know stuff, but we've forgotten, we don't access it, we don't utilize it. We're not connected fully to our, all of our senses. We're kind of flatlining, a lot of people. <laughs> and when we get connected to the depth of our feelings and the, the height, you know, the, those extremes of our experience and use all our other sensory organs, there's so much more in the universe we can pick up on. So that's part of the certainty you know like we'll have a thought and doubt will kick in and oh that's a stupid idea who do you think you are to be <laughs> you know pursuing that but with the 
the skills from improv helped me see the largesse of, of who I am. And that's not saying I'm any bigger than anyone else's, but I could see, I could see the, you know, we are incredible. We are in, have incredible capacity. But this hanya, hanya, hanya head talk, <laughs> um, the inner critic, as you, as you mentioned, can be our downfall. Mm, mm, yeah, definitely. I, I, and I think it's, we do, we do have so much capacity, we have so much potential in areas that we we think, that, as we were talking about before, that we just kind of hold ourselves back so much. Um, like, uh, even thinking about an example for myself, like I ran my first ultra marathon last year. Um, I don't know if I'll be doing any any soon again, um, but looking back sort of, eight, nine, ten years ago, I thought a half marathon was a was a massive distance. Um, but here I am, I've I've tripled the distance and I've run it off road and it's taken me nine hours to do it. But it's um definitely wasn't beyond my capacity. Yeah. Which yeah, is is kind of it's a it's a small example, but I think it's a it's quite an interesting example there. <laughs> The producer of that um, television show came to me off the floor later when they brought the chair down and everything, and he and I swear I can swear you gave me permission earlier. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> He's, he was from Australia. He said, "For fuck's sake, Pat Armitstead, even when we told you you won, your heart rate stayed at 88 <laughs> all the way through 88." And it's like, yes, I know presence. Mm. I don't always own it, but I do own, I do know presence. Mm. I can be present. And I think like that's that's one of the big things about um, kind of tapping into all of that stuff that you were talking about before. Do you have any kind of ways that you uh, try and make yourself more present or try and become more present? So do you have any habits that you use or any strategies to kind of tap into that that presence so you're aware of of everything and can recall it later, hopefully? Ever since winning that game show, I do – this is just one little tangent. um, I do a range of things every day that keep me back in that zone. And most often I get into my car a different way. I walk around the car and get in. I get in the passenger side and wiggle across. I might drive out the driveway, drive in and drive out again. Um, I do something different in the morning every day that consciously has me break the pattern, break the habit, get me... um, tuned into now because otherwise I would just be on automatum. Mm, that's a that's a really cool concept actually. I've never I've, I don't think I've come across that one before, but I, I like it and I see how see how it can work. I'll have to and I'll have to I, try that this week. <laughs> you know, I do do other other practices. I do meditate. I um, guru, but I do take the quiet time. 
um, and I do, even if it's only standing in the backyard under the clothesline, um, we've got to get grounded, have our feet on the earth. In order to really connect with what's around us, we've got to get present to us and being grounded, um, knowing our centre. I did some Zen training one time, and you know how people can break the blocks of wood with mm -hmm. the back of their hand? Mm -hmm. So I never mastered that. I was quite ashamed and embarrassed about that. But I did break an arrow that was held to my throat, and I broke it. He held it in position, the pointy bit, I don't know what you call this little bit here, you know, that little soft sensitive space at yeah. the bottom of your neck. He held the arrow point there and we just had learnt previously to just bring um, the energy and our body down to our umbilicus <clears throat> and for the 12 or 15 people who were in the room, we all snapped this arrow. So, and we could see, you know, from everyone else's experience that the facilitators not bending or exerting pressure or anything, we we grounded and as we grounded that energy, uh, our energy became more and more powerful and it snapped. Did uh, you snap it, like, did you use your hand to snap it or did you just snap it with, the, with your neck? It, it just snapped, yeah. Well, he, he held it, the feathered end of the arrow in the palm of his hand flat <clears throat> and the point was in our necks and we centred and you could see it bend and snap. That is pretty, pretty impressive. It's woo-woo. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That so, is a... That, you know, I, I would do that too, just consciously... Because our energy, if we think about it, and you would know this from physio, most people breathe in the upper one-third of their chest, mm -hmm. yeah, and they kind of live in that very shallow breathing space. Um, to learn to breathe fully and then to bring your energy, once you've opened up your, your airways, and then to bring that energy just consciously Imagine bringing energy down to your umbilicus and holding it. We usually do it with a, a closed fist. It works. Mm, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there that science can't explain. And I I, I like yeah. to when I'm when I'm talking to people about the body. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff about the body that we know now that we didn't know 50 years ago. Um, but we're still only have a small amount of answers around it so in 50 years time people were going to look back at the knowledge that we had today and think okay yeah you knew a little bit but there's a whole lot of other stuff here that you that you don't know um and i'm i'm actually quite looking forward to all the stuff that we find out over the next 50 years and uh, and, and what that brings with it yes yes so Pat, where has where's joyology taken you? Not just in kind of a, a geographical sense, but um, you can, you can go there too if you'd like. But um, in in kind of your your personal journey with with joyology, where is it where is it taken you in the last uh, seventeen years? <clears throat> well, I've now delivered over 600 keynotes 
and around about the same number of workshops. I've received over 5,000 testimonials and endorsements, which just blows me away. I ran the Humour in Business Award for three years. Um, I had my own radio program, Radio Improv Joy in the Moment, which was very much about teaching people to get into that present moment space <clears throat> without being too woo-woo spiritual. <laughs> I toured with Patch Adams. That was um, right up there with uh, a, a life-changing, really affirming experience that, you know, I was definitely on the right path and um, this was my direction. Through to now, I made a plan in 2004, a 20-year plan, and part of that was by 2020 we would be experiencing an intimacy revolution. I believe we are close. I've seen such change in business thinking now. Um, not everybody, but there's a shift with business owners, boards, um, really appreciating and valuing the humanity that's within the people they employ and working into that space, um, that has really heartened me. I'm still focused on humour, but it's only one aspect now. I'm really looking at building social, emotional and conversational intelligence um, and to see where humour intelligence links around that. No one's, no one's written about that before. So over the next couple of years, I want to write the book Humour Intelligence. And my... Um, Current mission, last year I endeavoured to launch the Laughter Channel. Pat, you've mentioned the Laughter Channel a few times now and kind of given us a little bit of background about it, but can you elaborate a little bit more about what the Laughter Channel is and kind of what you're, what you're looking to achieve with it? Yes, I can. <laughs> the, um, the idea came to me in 2004. I made a 20-year plan and it included... Um, creating the laughter, laughter channel. Back then, I thought um, I want to own the laughter channel for Southeast Asia. So, passage of time and the visions changed a little bit. What I, I really want people to understand the significance and value of humour. We don't afford it a lot of um, headspace. <laughs> you know, we don't consciously think about building our sense of humour. <clears throat> or building our sense for humour. Not everyone has, you know, uh, is full of bubbles and knows lots of jokes and it's not about that anyway. But so evolving that level of consciousness around there and I, ha I have a subtitle on it now called, so it's the Laughter Channel where um, human interest meets humour interest. So it's really connecting with um, those deep aspects of our humanity and also how humour comes in there. Time and time again, different people that I've met over the years, it's like in the height of a crisis, aspects of humour, if appropriate or not, <laughs> um, can be used um, and, you know, it diffuses situations, can yank people off the path lift people out of a, um, a, a plateau of, you know, being quite depressed. And and so I want to explore that, you know, the 
One of the people that I'm going to interview is a comedian, but he's actually just finished a suicidology degree, and it's <laughs> it just kind of shows me the paradox of where we've come to. There's so many things, uh, like yogic laughter was invented back in 1995. That's the fun you're having when you're not really having fun. There's this whole wave of positive psychology, which also began in 1995. And there's not a lot written about humour intelligence. So the um, series that I want to create, I want to explore that with the, with an ultimate goal of writing the book, Humour Intelligence. My um, initial plan was a 13-part TV series, TV series, and I still have that. Um, as a vision. Uh, I didn't attract the funding for that last year, so I've continued in the same vein, just conducting smaller interviews online or live with um, people here in Brisbane um, with a view to getting enough material then to produce a pilot and then I can begin seeking that next level of funding. Awesome. That's uh, that's very exciting, and I wish you I wish you well with that. Um, I'm looking Thank forward to, to watching and reading and, and learning. Um, but that's got to be quite an uncomfortable situation for you to go through as well, in terms of kind of applying for funding and uh, looking to get that off the ground too. Absolutely. <laughs> the um, especially doing it for yourself, like uh, I think I mentioned earlier in the show. When I was living in New Zealand, we raised, a group of us, uh, raised $550,000 and built Estuary Arts Centre in Oriwa. And that's quite a different thing, um, creating outside of yourself as opposed to um, doing it for you. <laughs> uh, for me, that's a totally different ballgame. Um, and, yeah, so the... It's been important to me to to get as much clarity as I can, dot my I's and cross my T's, um, rehearse conversations so that I'm feeling as well-equipped as I can be, going into conversations, um, attracting funds, creating partnerships, the level of which I haven't had up to now. Mm. That's... that's um, you know, I don't know the answer because I haven't been that far at that level. So, uh, yes, it is. It's it's new. <laughs> um, however, I, I, I still bring in, to a certain extent, some of those practices from the past. The worst that can happen is that I'm back in the corridor and, you know, what I know from past experience is uh, I had this happen even just the other day. Um, you make these approaches, and they don't always turn out as you might like, but people still remember. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the person who, you know, did whatever. And and so down the track, and it can be years, somebody will say something and they'll say, oh, yes, I remember her. And so you've got it's a good it's a good thing to do, even if you don't get the outcome. And sometimes you can get more than what you thought you were going to get. Mm, I think that's I think that's great advice, um, Pat. I mean, you've you've already answered one of my my favourite end questions already. But another one was, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did, and how did you get through it? 
The uh, last uncomfortable um, was two years ago. Um, I became very unwell over there. I had a massive um, acute joint problem with all of my joints. Um, my immune system um, <laughs> went really haywire. Um, so for two years I was unwell. Um, I was recovering, but um, I had two bouts of pneumonia and, you know, I just wasn't getting better. And friends said to me, does your son know just how sick you really are, Pat? And I said, oh, well, probably not, Miss Independence. <laughs> um, and they said, well, we, you've got to tell him. So um, for the first time in my life, I had to surrender and ask for help in a big way. And um, I rang and talked to my son and his wife and asked them if they would help me come home to Brisbane, um, which they did. Yeah, to have illness, <laughs> illness brought me to a very low financial place and I didn't have the resilience at the time to be doing what I would do, like when I'm down to my last $5 <laughs> in the past, um, that wasn't going to be happening this time. So I just I needed to surrender, not make it mean anything, and, you know, be open to the answer. Yeah, you know, there's only two answers. It'll be yes or no. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, either way, I'm back out in the corridor and the corridor's fine. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. And, I mean, Pat, the, the whole conversation's kind of been, we, we've talked around this, this next question at length, but do you have any other specific strategies that you use to approach uncomfortable situations? Probably, uh, I thought about this quite a lot. Over the years, probably especially the last 10 or 15 years, um, I prime myself before I go forward to do something. So I would invest a lot of forethought, planning. Um, <clears throat> just for example, when I made the first few approaches about, you know, getting sponsorship for the Laughter Channel, I had to ask Patch Adams. Well, I didn't have to, but I asked Patch Adams, would he be patron? Um, so I really invested a lot of time thinking, what do I really want to ask him uh, because he doesn't do that kind of thing much? Um, what's going to be there to be compelling um, without getting too heavy into, you know, it being a, a businessy too much thing? So, you know, keeping maintaining my authentic self um, but presenting well. And one of the things I've done the last four or five years is I've done NLP, NLP Master Prac, Embraining and Conversational Intelligence because I want to improve my languaging. Uh, my written work is good, but I wanted to excel here <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and be able to be so fluid in, in my language. So um, What's the, what's the answer then? So some of that has been personal development and other has been planning and preparation. Pat, I want to take a moment just to say thank you so much for 
coming on and having a chat with me for uh, an hour and a half or so this evening. It's been uh, it's been absolutely fantastic to to sit down and connect and hear your story and pick your brain. But I also want to say thank you so much as well for spreading a little bit more joy around the world and um, bringing yeah bringing not yeah joy and humour into a whole lot of people's lives and in a raft of different ways. I think it's a, especially in this day and age, it's really an important thing to be doing. So thank you so much for that. Mm, pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's been great to have this opportunity to, um, yeah, share on a, a range of experiences and a vision which is um, somewhat different to most people. <laughs> mm. Yeah, very a very cool one. Pat, if people are enjoying your stuff and want to find out more about you or learn from you or, or work with you in any way, how can they do that? What can they do? Uh, well, the um, my website, it's still www.joyology.co.nz. Um, I haven't changed it over to uh, an Australian website as yet, so that's still um, there. And they can link with me on Facebook under Pat Armitstead. And the Laughter Channel with Pat Armitstead also has a Facebook group if people want to join the group and then um, see the daily posts and the um, episodes that are coming out up to now anyway. Beautiful. And Pat, last question for you. Do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Um. Yes, I do actually. The since two thousand and one, I have sent over ten thousand pieces of what I call glad mail. This is personal mail celebrating, honouring, congratulating people for where I see they are right in this moment. It can be planned for somebody that perhaps I know a little, but it also can be very random. I've written a card on a bus and given it to a bus driver. I've um, given a card to a checkout operator um, whom I saw was having such a difficulty with one particular person at the checkout. Um, I, I give them out at conferences and they're just front of mind. I don't know which person's going to receive the mail. So, and there's nothing quite like receiving a personalised piece of mail where someone has taken time to sit down and write from the heart and acknowledge another person. So for everyone who's listening, I know <laughs> that there'll be somebody in their radar, at least one person, who actually needs to hear from them. And the invitation is to be in touch. Letters and cards are wonderful. Phone call is just fine at meet up, but make the connection. You know, we've, we've become so isolated and separated from each other and loneliness is a big problem. And to break through that and bring, you know, a beautiful gesture of goodwill is a beautiful thing to do. Awesome. Pat, I think that is a, a fantastic challenge to leave us with. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>